been looking the last uh, few months at Second Corinthians. We're up to chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. And today, we're going to read a section, and I need to tell you, put it in a little bit of context before uh, we get into it, so you can, uh, as we read it, so you can understand a bit about what's going on. What Paul's doing uh, in this section is he is addressing his critics. Remember, there are people in the church in Corinth who think he's a poor preacher, poor apostle, uh, that he might even lack some integrity, that his gospel doesn't seem that powerful because he's not that impressive. He's not, uh, uh, and he lives a life that is full of suffering and uh, difficulty. And so there are people who have come along and said, you know what, really, uh, uh, who, who've made quite an impression, who are impressive people, super gifted, uh, uh, and have bedazzled, really, the uh, uh, the Corinthian church to begin to reject Paul and then to reject uh, his gospel. So he's addressing uh, uh, their uh, criticisms uh, in this passage. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15, uh, that text is in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are, are is known to God, And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. And therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So uh, this uh, we have uh, a set of newlyweds in our family and we get to spend some time with them this week. And they've been married about four months and they're right on track. Uh, they uh, they fight like cats and dogs and then... Uh, they make up and it's super sweet and then they fight like cats and dogs and they're trying to figure out how to, you know, be a married couple. My son said to me, you know, all those platitudes they say about marriage revealing your selfishness. I'm like, yeah, he's like, they're true, aren't they? <laughs> I was like, yeah, buddy, bring it. So, um, so one of the things being around them this week, one of the things that they really are into is food and cooking and and not just food and cooking, but they like presentation and they like exotic flavors and they they do all this stuff. They got all these uh, wedding gifts to, to cook and do things. So it's a big deal. I think it really is a big thing for people in their 20s now that food is a big deal. It says a lot about you, about what you eat and how you eat it and that kind of stuff. That's why Richmond's the best place to live, right? Because we have the best restaurants ever and we're 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 a food oriented Place here. Um, so it reminded me of the first year I was married and uh, uh, some adventures with food. So um, when we were first married and we went to, uh, back to seminary, I'd been there for a year. Marty went with me. She worked in the uh, seminary library. I worked on the seminary uh, maintenance crew and I was a youth pastor in a local church and um, I took 18 to 20 hours every semester. Super busy. Super busy. 
and uh, and, and only the way a 25-year-old can be. Because, you know, in your 20s, you can do anything. So um, one of the things that we would do is we would get up on, I would get up on Sunday mornings and I would make breakfast. And uh, one of the wedding gifts that we had gotten was a pizza cooker that was this thing about this big that had a lid on it. I don't think they make them anymore because they're kind of a dumb, dumb thing. Well, I looked at the pizza cooker and I thought, you know what? That's not a pizza cooker. That's an omelet cooker because I can make an omelet. This big. Now, now you gotta know, you gotta understand, I, uh, learned to cook, uh, from my mom and, uh, in my fraternity house in college. So that kind of shapes the way I think about food and the way I think about cooking. So one morning, one Sunday morning, I got up, fixed the coffee, let her sleep in, I made this big omelet. I'd chopped up the onions and the peppers and put the cheese in it and all that stuff. It was beautiful. Great big omelet. Cut it in half. She's eating her half. I'm eating my half. And I'm looking at her plate while we're eating. And I notice she's taking her fork and sliding it without me, you know, kind of cool, flicking the onions out of the, of the omelet. And I'm like, what is wrong with you and what is wrong with this omelet? She's like, well, the onions are a little strong. What? So I remember it this way. I don't know if this, if you remember it this way or not. But I, I, I reached over and got your onions and I ate them, didn't I? Yeah. Okay. I remember that now. So I'm like, there, see how good they are? So, so I had worked really hard to please her with this and I had not pleased her. So we get in the car, we go to church. And we had to pick up her little sister, uh, who was living there too to go to church. She gets up, she gets in the car, we're driving to church, and she goes, wow, did y'all go to the grocery store yesterday? Smells like you left some onions in here. (laughs) Yeah. It was so awesome. So, um, so, (laughs) so, so what I realized about that was a great lesson in cooking, uh, to cook the onions a little bit before you put them in the omelet. But the, the other great lesson about that was about the nature of trying to please other people. Now, this is, this is a challenging thing for us this morning, and it's, you, you're going to have to pay attention to me about this because this is nuanced, right? We, what, what, what you could say is you shouldn't care about pleasing other people, but that's not true. Paul cares about what the Corinthians think about him, but he cares about it in a way that's not defensive and is not uh, all about himself. Because here's the weird thing about this is that you love somebody else so much that you want to please them. And yet what happens when that desire to please them becomes so overarching and becomes almost puts us in bondage to that, when, when we fail to please them, and ultimately you will fail to please, when that happens, it, it actually drains us of love for the person, makes us angry and disappointed and causes a conflict. Isn't that weird how that works? 
That's so strange to me that, that it happens that way. Well, that's what's going on in here with Paul when he speaks to the Corinthian church. They, he's been criticized and he's been challenged and, and, and people don't, uh, as they say here, you know, the, as he says that, uh, you know, people are making an outward show. He doesn't make a great outward show. He's not that impressive. But, but the gospel at the heart of who he is and what he is about is the thing that he is most concerned about. And so he is offering, he, he cares about what they think, but he cares about what they think about the gospel more than him. And so that if he has in some way obscured the gospel or if he has in some way uh, come between them and their understanding of that, he doesn't, he, he wants to, 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 to debunk that because that's, that's exactly the thing that we have to see today. Because here's what's going on in this text is that what Paul wants us to see is the profound nature, the overwhelming sense of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for us, that he was our substitute. And that as a result of that, that reorients us in the way in which we think about our relationships with other people and the way in which we think about God. So so what we have to understand about this is, yes, we are called to love one another, and yes, we are called to live for Christ. But it is in a context of grace and mercy. It is in a context of joy. So, so what we have to see here is there's nothing wrong with pleasing other people. But I can tell you, you will know that you have made pleasing another person a block to your ability to love them when you are crushed and undone and defensive and tempted to anger when what you've done ends up disappointing. So how do we get free of this and how do we understand how this works and how do we, how do we get at this? Well, one of the things that we do, Becky, put, put, put my notes up there. One of the things that we say in this church often is the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, which begins, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, that is uh, one of the central questions of life. To whom do you belong? And, and, and the thing about it is what, what happens to us in this is, is that what he wants us to understand, the writer of the catechism wants us to understand it, echoing what Paul says is this, that if I belong to Jesus Christ, that if he has fully paid for my sins, for all my sins with his precious blood, then I don't live for myself. But not only do I not live for myself, I don't live for others. And what's weird about that is, We kind of hold living for ourselves and living for others up against each other, but very often they're the same thing. Because if I can get, if I can please you, then that ends up pleasing me. Right? So that really, if I've made my focal point of my life, and there's and there's nothing wrong with loving people, and there's nothing wrong with pleasing people. The problem is when it becomes bigger to us than it should. And so, so we get at this, and Paul gets at this in his defense of his ministry to the church at Corinth by saying, "Listen, what's happening here is is that I belong to Christ, and because I belong to Christ." 
The, the commendation that I'm making of myself, it's not about outward show. It's not about these other things, but it's about what's in my heart. And it's about the nature of, of the work of Christ in and through and for me. So he says to them, in answer to this, to whom do you belong? The love of Christ controls us. And the love of Christ controls us, controls Paul, in such a way that he might live for him and that he might, next slide, and and not ourselves or for others. And you know this is true, that we spend so much of our time and energy on on making an impression, on trying to to get a, a, a certain sense of approval or or uh, to communicate something about ourselves or to 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 impress in a way that actually ends up in the end putting us in a weird bondage to the, 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 those that we're trying to impress and it obscures the love of Christ, it obscures the work of Christ uh, in our lives to those people, right? So how does belonging to Christ actually help you to have not just an inappropriate relationship to God, but also to others? We're going to answer that question. And then what we're going to look at is the, the, the question of what he says here about Christ dying for all. And then we're going to answer the question, what does that mean? And then what does it mean uh, that, um, uh, that we live now for Christ? This is a great summary of this uh, text that I came across today. He, that's Paul, might have yielded to the temptation to curry favor with his hearers by whittling down his message to suit their tastes. But the knowledge that his inmost motives were fully known to God, to whom alone he was responsible, and that they, that is his his motives would stand the test of his, God's scrutiny, act as, as a break upon the natural desire to please others. And let me just say right now that there is not, that human beings uh, are hardwired to do this. I, and it's, it's a weird way it works. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when this becomes a big thing for us. Uh, or, or not. When, if, if you have a two or three year old in your house and um, they got up this morning and they said, I'm going to dress myself to go to church. And they come downstairs, plaid and stripes, orange and red. They don't go together, right? Only orange and maroon go together in Virginia, but only in Virginia, right? But uh, just like orange and blue. Do they go together? I don't think so. Anyway, um, so so you have this thing going on here where uh, this kid comes down or they might have a tutu with a, a, a sidearm, you know, there's things, two things that just don't go together. Right. Right. You know, and you're laughing at it because, you know, you're not going to let your kid go out the door like that. Well, but there's something about that that's actually awesome. They don't care. They just don't care. They don't care what you think. They just like it. They like the look. You know, it suits them. But you're like, "Uh uh-uh, you can't do that. And why do you say that? Well, because people are going to think poorly of you. Oh, no, I wouldn't think that. I don't want to think poorly of my child. They're not going to think poorly of your child. They're a cute two-year-old. They're going to think it's cool. They're going to think you are... An indulgent, silly parent, maybe, or something. 
But the fact is, there's something about that to me. There's some freedom in that that I actually find compelling. Right? But somewhere along the line, that goes out the window, and we spend an awful lot of our time confusing love with just being in bondage to pleasing other people. And again, let me reiterate, there's nothing wrong with pleasing other people. It's just when it becomes so big that when you don't get it, you're undone. And you actually end up not loving the person you're trying to please. So it says he acted as a natural break, a, a break upon the natural desire to please others, freed from paralyzing inhibitions and removed from the undue sensitiveness he might otherwise have felt when subjected to the unjust criticism of his fellows. He confidently trusts that however much others may defame him, the Corinthians with whom he has had such personal and intimate connections, he knows these people and, and love him, will have become convinced by now of his integrity. So, so he feels a great freedom as he deals with them. He feels a great freedom as, as he talks to them, as he proclaims the gospel to them. So that, that what's at stake here is not so much his reputation or what they think about him, but what's at stake here is the very glory of Christ. What's at stake here is the work of the gospel in their lives. So this freedom that he has not to be um, uh, caught up in pleasing them is tempered a bit, though, by the fact that he says, by the promise of judgment. He's just mentioned that in the previous verses. And he says here that knowing the fear of the Lord causes him to persuade. So it's not like he goes out and says, I don't care what you think. I don't have to be to, to be or to do anything uh, uh, for you. It doesn't matter. I'm just set free in Christ and I'm just going to bowl you over. No, he wants to persuade them. He wants them to believe the gospel, but he's not. But and, and so that the glory is Christ. He is not concerned so much about his reputation so that he gets to be the one that they ultimately uh, uh, well, that, that, that somehow or other by him pleasing them. Um, it suddenly takes the focus off of Christ and upon how great or gifted or important or impressive he is. So he will do and become what is required to preach the gospel and to see to it that as many as possible will believe, right? So it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty powerful thing. He, he wants them to, to love him. He wants them to hear him. He wants them to respond to him, but not for his sake, but for their sake and for the gospel's sake in their lives. Now, um, I'm going to, I'm going to use as an illustration here something that everybody in this room, most everybody in this room is guilty of, myself included. Uh, and I'm, I'm not criticizing this practice so much as I'm criticizing this practice. So um, bear with me. So there's a thing that we do called photobombing. Do you know what that is? It's not dropping cameras out of planes or something like that. It's you get set up to take a picture and somebody dives in the picture, makes a funny face at the end. Uh, every family gathering in our family ends with pictures. My kids hate it. They just hate it. It's been that way since they were babies. And they know, wait, 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 can't leave yet. Got to take a picture. So we do that. So a few weeks ago, 
we had a, a birthday party for my dad. And Marty, as we were getting ready to go, she wanted to take a picture of my dad with his grandkids. And so she gets ready to take the picture. My older brother, love him, great godly man, photo bombs, jumps in the picture with a big grin on his face. Cute, funny, 60-year-old man. Right? And it's fine. And he loves them. But you know what the photo bomber does? What's the focal point of the picture now? It's not Papa and his grandkids. It's Uncle Brad photobombing the picture. It's the focal point. I know some of you thinking, preacher, you've stopped preaching and you've gone to meddling. That's not, I've done that and that was not my intention. Well, let's take a poll of people who don't know you look at the picture and see the photobomber and see what's the focal point of the picture. Right? It's okay. We all do it. We'll keep doing it. But Paul will not photobomb the ministry of Jesus and the lives of his people, even if it means they don't like him. He's not going to become the focal point. Jesus is going to be the focal point, even if it means he fades out of the picture into oblivion. Right? The important thing is the work of Christ. Now, and put yourself in Paul's position here, because he obviously cares, he obviously is concerned, he obviously loves these people, but he is not so bound up. He doesn't spend this entire letter writing a defense and silencing his critics. Rather, rather, he reminds them of the nature of the gospel. He reminds them of the nature of the work that Jesus Christ has done for them, and he lets that ultimately be his appeal. Because notice here what he says, right? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So one of the things that you you might have a question about here is, what does he mean when he says that Christ died for all? Does that mean Everybody gets saved that every that that the the death of Christ for all uh, that that's that that's what he means. Well, clearly. Um, next slide, please, Becky. That's not that's not what he what he means. The, now, the atoning event is universal in the sense that it is big enough. Uh, it is sufficient enough to pay for every sin committed by every person past, present and future in the history of the world. Jesus Christ was was a uh, an, an infinite figure, and and by virtue of his infinity, his death was big enough. His atoning work is big enough, powerful enough, profound enough to secure uh, the payment of sin for everybody who's ever sinned, right? But it's quite clear that Paul by no means envisions any kind of universal salvation. Because remember, in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he's spoken of the God of this age who's blinded the minds of those who are perishing. So what he's saying here is, listen, that there's there's this mysterious thing that goes on, that the gospel is preached, that Jesus Christ is raised up, and that we should pray that the eyes and the ears of, of, of folks will be opened. 
But the fact of the matter is, it is a big and profound thing that Paul is proclaiming. It is a dynamic thing to recognize the reality of the death of of, of Christ. It is a profound thing to recognize that it is substitutionary, that it is for you. Because, listen, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. He died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. So the point of, of, of that he's saying here is that the, the atoning work of Christ was, was, was for us in place of us. So that when Jesus Christ dies, he dies our death. When Jesus Christ takes the punishment of our sins, he takes the punishment of our sin. So it's a substitutionary thing. It is so big and powerful and profound. It is big enough, sufficient for every sin, efficient for all the sins of those who believe. And so, so as we look at this, you have to, that is the thing that's motivating him. That's the thing that's moving him is this conception of how rich and free and big the atoning work of Christ is. Because of that, he says, that's what controls us. That's what leads us. And that's what motivates us now to live for him. Next, next slide. So the implication of this makes all the difference in the way in which you think about uh, the gospel. The implication uh, for your life in Christ's uh, substitutionary death. Now, sometimes what people think about this is, is that essentially there's a transaction going on between me and Jesus. And what happened is Jesus died for me, and that was all of grace. And because he died for me, the question is now, what am I going to do for him? And there's some value in that. But the problem with that is that ultimately what that does is that puts us in a position where we are conducting a transaction for Jesus, right? Jesus did this, and so now he stands apart from me and makes these demands on me. Paul's very clear that the implication of the gospel is that we're not our own, that we belong to Christ, and as as a result of us belonging to Christ, then everything about us is his, that we belong, that, that, that our identity and our future and our destiny is all bound up in Him. And that has huge implications, imposing implications on how I live. But you can't come at this from the standpoint of, well, Jesus did this for me. Now I'm going to, in a way, uh, pay that back as if you could. As if you could. Years ago, we um, we did a capital campaign, and the people in the nine o'clock service who were around here, and we did this capital campaign, laughed with me because they remember this well. So, we we hired an outside consultant who was a great guy, very helpful, did great things for us, helped us to have a successful campaign. Now, he was a retired pastor, and as a retired pastor, he had a weird sense of humor, kind of weird religious humor. One day we were going across the road to get some lunch and he said, Pastor, we better hurry up and cross the road or we're going to be the quick or the dead. See, don't laugh. It's not funny. (laughs) That's not funny. Not really. I'm like, that is weird church humor that, yeah, that's right, Carl. Don't laugh. It's not funny. So one of the things, one of the things that I, I thought was 
great about that, though, was he challenged us in a way to think about responding to the gospel in grace, except, except he was doing some training with us and he was talking about how to do pledge cards. And so when you do pledge cards, you have to do pledge cards for a building campaign so you can know how much money you have so you can know what you have to build. And he said, so imagine that you fill out your pledge card and you walk up to the front of the church and Jesus is standing there and you hand him your pledge card and he looks at it and he says, is this the best you can do? Now, when he said that, I broke out in a sweat because the, the alarm bell went off in my head. It's there's a biblical place for Jesus evaluating gifts. The only time Jesus ever commended anyone's gift was when she gave all. Everything she had. So, by the standard that was given to us, all of us were going to have to deal with Jesus being disappointed in our gift. Because some of you were very generous, but none of you gave all. This is uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, that's why I like this. I like the awkwardness. So what do you do? What does it mean that the love of Christ compels me? My life is not my own and I live for him because he died for me. The reality of discipleship that is following Christ is present within Paul's confession, yet not as a demand, but as a gift. It is present as an indicative moment within Christ's work. In other words, it is present in here in that this is what has been done, and this is now who you are. The apostle is not speaking here of dedication to Christ, but of liberation by Christ, the joyous reality of being possessed savingly by Christ as Lord. This is clear from, from his own indication that he is constrained by Christ's love, his reference to Christ's resurrection, and his continuing description of Christ's work of creating new persons and reconciling them to God. Human beings who by their very nature live for themselves have died in Christ's death. Obedience to God requires something more than a new motivation or a fresh dedication of ourselves. It requires a new creation of the human being. We have been given Christ as Lord. We cannot make him Lord by our own decisions, which remain inherently self-seeking whether we recognize it. Or not. I mean, isn't it weird? And we use this language, and I know what people mean when they say they've made Christ Lord of their lives. But don't you get the inherent logical fallacy in that? How do you make someone Lord? (laughs) They're Lord. That's where we begin. They're the Lord 
who lived, died, and rose again for you. And what needs to happen for me is the change that he must bring about in my heart and life to reorient me now away from the inherent self-seeking and self-pleasing that I do by pleasing myself and then spending the rest of my time in pleasing you into seeing the profound dynamic thing that it means that Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me. That's why the love of Christ controls me. It is the defining characteristic of my life. It is the defining characteristic of my destiny. It is the defining characteristic of all that is about me. How, if that, if I see that, if I believe that, it is impossible for me not to be changed. It is impossible for me not to be, in some sense, overwhelmed by that, imposed upon by that, and focused upon the dynamic of grace in my life to live no longer for myself, but experience the freedom of what it means to have Christ as Lord. And that's what he's getting at uh, in this text. And nothing could be more profound. Listen, listen, when, when, you, when you willfully rebel against God, and when you willfully uh, rebel against what, what his standard is, when you willfully do that as a Christian, what you are misunderstanding by doing that is the lordship of Christ in your life by virtue of his sacrifice. What you are missing about that is the profound nature of grace and mercy that is so overwhelming, you have minimized it to a point so that you can ignore it and go back to the old pattern of living for yourself, to please yourself or to please others. So what Paul's getting at here is, listen, what the gospel does is it liberates us and sets us free from the condemning need to please. So I live for Christ, and the one that I live for died for me, rose again for me, and enables me now to live in freedom from needing to be all about pleasing you or all about pleasing myself, because his love is so overwhelming It changes the orientation of my life. Uh, There's a great existential play from the 40s and 50s called No Exit. And um, it's a group of people, French people, in hell. And, yeah, they're in hell. Uh, Hell's a room that's uncomfortably hot. They can't get out of it. They're in there stuck with each other. And there's all kinds of stuff going on with them. They're, They're not very nice people. Very unpleasant people. But one of the things that happens to you when you go to hell and um, this existential play is something changes in your body. And you know what it is? You don't have eyelids. You can't close your eyes. And the people in the room with you can't close their eyes. They're looking at you. All the time. Evaluating. Their eyes never off of you. And what makes it hell in this vision is that's all you're left with. That's all you're stuck with. Is the unblinding, staring eye of evaluation upon you all the time. 
right? What Jesus Christ did by dying is he sets us free from the need to live and to look and to be driven in bondage to the law of pleasing. Now we have the freedom of obedience to Christ as our risen Lord. Let's ask him to help us with that. Father, we come to you today thanking you for um, the fact that you have set us free, that we belong to you, uh, and that we do not belong to ourselves or to the opinions of others. And so bless us, we pray. Help us. And I pray that you would set us free uh, from the opinions of others. Set us free from the opinions of ourselves and help us to entrust ourselves fully to you, Lord Jesus, as the one who died for us, who rose again for us, and to whom now, because you paid our price, we belong. Give us joy in that. Change us. Reorient us. Uh, and I pray that you would give us true freedom in the work that you achieved for us. Lord, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.